Chapter Seventeen of Jacqueline of Golden River by H. M. Egbert. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter Seventeen. Louis d'Epernay. He uttered an oath and took two steps backward, but I saw that he was unarmed and that he realized his helplessness. He flung his hands above his head and stood facing me, surprise and terror twisting his features into a grimacing grin. There was no man, next to LaRue, whom I would rather have seen. "'I wanted to see you, Monsieur Hewlett,' he babbled. "'I can quite believe that, Monsieur Lacroix,' I answered. "'You have looked for me before, but this time you have found me.' "'I have something of importance to say to you, monsieur,' he began again. "'I can believe that, too,' I answered. "'It is about Le Vieil Ange, is it not?' "'By God, I did not mean—I swear to you, monsieur—' "'Listen, monsieur, one moment only,' he stammered. "'Lower your pistol. You see that I am unarmed.' I lowered it. "'Well, say what you have to say,' I said to him. "'Leroux is a devil,' he burst out, with no pretended passion. "'I want you to help me, Monsieur Hewlett, and I can help you in a way you do not dream of. I am not one of his kind to take his orders. Why, in Quebec he would be like the dirt beneath my feet. He has a hold over me.' He tempted me to gamble in one of his houses, and I—well, he has a hold over me. But he shall not drive me into murder. Monsieur Hewlett, how much do you think this seigneury is worth? I am not a financier, I answered. Some half a million dollars, perhaps? He came close to me and hissed into my ear. Monsieur— there is more gold in these rocks than anywhere in the world. Look here, here. He stooped down and began tossing pebbles at my feet. But they were pebbles of pure gold, and each one of them was as large as the first joint of my thumb. And I had misjudged his courage, I think, for it was avarice and not fear that made him tremble. So that was Lacroix's master passion. I had always associated it with decrepit old age, as in the case of Charles Duchesne. I looked into the cave. Lacroix was bending over a great heap of sacks, piled almost to the roof. They were sacks of earth, but the earth was naked with gold, and I saw nuggets glittering in it. "'It is everywhere, monsieur,' cried Lacroix. In this stream, in these hills, too, you can gather a mortarful of earth anywhere, and it will show color when it is washed. We found this place together. You and LaRue? No, I and... He broke off suddenly and eyed me with furtive cunning. Yes, yes, monsieur, LaRue and I. And we two worked here together with nothing more than picks and shovels and mortars and pestles, LaRue and I. There was nobody else. 
We slept here when Duchesne thought we were in Quebec. For days and days we washed and dug, and we have hardly scratched the surface. Monsieur, it is the mother load. It is the world's treasure house. There are millions upon millions here. I understood now why the provisions had been stored there. And I had passed by and never known that there was an ounce of gold. But— "'There are three blankets here,' I said. "'Yes, yes, monsieur,' cried Lacroix eagerly. "'I suffer much from cold. Two of them are mine, and Leroux has only one. It is the richest gold deposit in the world, monsieur Hewlett, and neither Raoul nor Jean Petitjean knows the secret. Only Leroux and I.' One cannot light upon this place save by a miracle of chance, such as brought you here. God put this treasure in these hills, and he did not mean it to be found. I grasped him by the shoulder. "'Do you see what this means?' I shouted. "'It means a glorious life,' he cried. "'All the wealth in the world.' "'No, it means death,' I answered. It means that if LaRue succeeds in killing me, he will kill you, too. Don't you see that we must stand together? Do you suppose that he will share his hoard with you? No, Monsieur Hewlett, answered Lacroix quietly. And that is precisely what I wanted to say to you. You are not a hog like LaRue. I can trust you. And then you are a gentleman, and we gentlemen trust each other. I will give you a share in the gold, and you will get Mademoiselle. She has no love for Louis. She left him half an hour after the marriage had been performed. Leroux witnessed the ceremony, and he hurried away with Père Antoine, and then she ran away. She loves you, and Louis will not trouble you. Fah, I muttered. I don't want to hear your views on— on Mademoiselle Jacqueline, my friend. But it seems to me that our interests are mutual, and, as it happens, I was on my way back to have it out with LaRue when I stumbled upon this place. "'But I can show you the way!' he exclaimed. "'Come with me, monsieur. I don't know how you got into the wrong passage, but it is simple, straight ahead. Come with me. I will precede you.' I followed him into the darkness, and very soon heard the sound of the cataract again. And then once more I was standing at the tunnel entrance, under a brilliant moon, and the chateau was before me. It was all dark now, except for a glimmer of light that came from two windows on the far side, visible indirectly as a reflection from the snowy steeps beyond. That must be Duchesne's room. LaRue's I did not know, of course, but I surmised that it was one of those in the same story, which I had passed while making my previous tour of discovery. But this ignorance did not cause me much concern. I knew that once we were face to face together, I should gain the victory over him. And I would be merciless and not falter. And Jacqueline! If I won, should I not keep her? 
She was mine, even against her will, by every rule of war. And this was a world of war, where beauty went to the strong, and all rules but that were scratched from the book of life. I would not even tread softly now, nor slink within the shadows. Nor did I fear Lacroix, although he had fallen out of sight behind me. I strode steadily across the snow and opened the door in the dark wing, entered the hall and ascended the stairway, took the turn to the right and passed through the little hall. As I had guessed, the light came from Duchesne's room. I heard Larue's harsh voice within, and if I stopped outside it was not in indecision, but because I meant to make sure of my man this time. Through the crack of the door I saw old Charles Duchesne nodding over his wheel. Larue was standing near him, and in a corner beside the window was Jacqueline. She was facing our common enemy as valiantly as she had done before and he was still tormenting her. "'I want you, Jacqueline,' I heard him say, in a voice which betrayed no throb of passion. "'And I am going to have you. I always have my way. I am not like that weak fool Hewlett.' "'It was I sent him away, not you,' she cried. "'Do you think he was afraid of you?' LaRue looked at her in admiration. "'You are a splendid woman, Jacqueline,' he said. "'I like the way you defy me. But you are quite at my mercy. And you are going to yield. You will yield your will to mine.' "'Never!' she cried. "'I will fling myself into the lake before that shall happen.' "'Ah, monsieur!' Her voice took on a pleading tone. Why will you not take all we have and let us go? We are two helpless people. We shall never betray your secrets. Why must you have me, too? Because I love you, Jacqueline, he cried. And now I heard an undertone of passion which I had not suspected in the man. I am not a scoundrel, Jacqueline. Life is a hard game, and I have played it hard. And I have loved you for a long time, but I would not tell you until I had the right as well as the power. But now my love is my law, and I will conquer you." He caught her in his arms. She uttered a little gasping cry and struggled wildly and ineffectually in his grasp. I was quite cold, for I knew that was to be the last of his villainies. I entered the room and walked up to the table, my pistol raised, aiming at his heart, and I felt my own heart beat steadily, and the will to kill rise dominant above every hesitation. LaRue spun around. He saw me, and he smiled his sour smile. He did not flinch, although he must have seen that my hand was as steady as a rock. I could not withhold a certain admiration for the man, but this did not weaken me. "'What? You again, monsieur?' he asked mockingly. "'You have come back? You are always coming back, aren't you?' The truth of the diagnosis struck home to me. Yes, I was always coming back. 
but this time I had come back to stay. "'Can I do anything further for you, Monsieur Hewlett?' he asked. "'Was not your bed comfortable? Do you want something, or is it only habit that has brought you back here where nobody wants you?' "'I have come back to kill you, Leroux,' I answered, and pulled the trigger six times. And each time I heard nothing but the click of the hammer. Then, with his bull's bellow, Simon was upon me, dashing his fists into my face and bearing me down. My puny struggles were as ineffective as though I had been fighting ten men. He had me on the floor and was kneeling on my chest, and in a trice the other ruffians had come dashing along the hall. Jacqueline was beating with her little fists upon LaRue's broad back, but he did not even feel the blows. I heard old Charles Duchesne's piping cries of fear, and then somebody held me by the throat, and I was swimming in black water. "'Bring a rope, Raoul,' I heard Simon call. Half-conscious, I knew that I was being tied. I felt the rope tighten upon my wrists and limbs. Presently I opened my aching eyes, to find myself trussed like a chicken to two legs of the table. I think it was Jean Petitjean who said something about shooting me, and was knocked down for it. Leroux was yelling like a demoniac. I saw Jacqueline's terrified face and the trembling old man, and presently Leroux was standing over me again, perfectly calm. He had taken the pistol from my coat pocket and placed it on the table, and now he took it in his hand and held it under my eyes. The magazine was empty. "'Ah, Paul Hewlett, you are a very poor conspirator indeed,' he said, "'to try to shoot a man without anything in your pistol. Do you remember how affectionately I put my arm around you when you were sitting in that chair?' writing your ridiculous check? It was then that I took the liberty of extracting the two cartridges. But I did think you would have had sense to examine your pistol and reload before you returned. Jacqueline was clinging to him. Monsieur, she panted, you will spare his life? You will unfasten him and let him go? But he keeps coming back protested Leroux, wringing his hands in mock dismay. "'Spare him, monsieur, and God will bless you. You cannot kill him in cold blood,' she cried. "'We will talk about that presently, my dear,' he answered. "'Go and sit down like a good child. I have something more to ask this gentleman before I make my decision.' He picked up a scrap of newspaper from the table and held it before my eyes, deliberately turning up the oil lamp wick that I might read it. I recognized it at once. It was the clipping from the newspaper, descriptive of the murdered man, which I had cut out in the train and placed in my pocketbook. "'You dropped this, my friend, when you pulled out your checkbook,' said Simon. You are a very poor conspirator, Paul Hewlett. Assuredly, I would not have you on my side at any price. Well? Well? I repeated mechanically. 
"'Who killed him?' he shouted. He shook the paper before my eyes, and then he struck me across the face with it. "'Who killed Louis d'Epernay?' he yelled, and Jacqueline screamed in fear. "'I did,' I answered after a moment. End of chapter 17 Recording by Roger Moline